So my family and I don't uh, take a lot of road trips, but when we do, I always end up driving behind one of those Dart Transit semi-trucks. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, on the backs of all the Dart semi-trucks, there's a picture of a smiling truck driver and then a list of reasons why everyone should want to drive a Dart truck. And it's actually quite convincing. Um, I have my application in. I'm waiting to hear back. Uh, one, of, one of the compelling reasons why everyone should want to drive a Dart truck is because Dart's business structure is owner-operated. So the drivers have an actual stake in the company. And because the drivers have an actual stake in the company, <laughs> I think that you guys are probably filling out applications right now as we speak, right? No, 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 this is an illustration for a purpose. But because the drivers have an actual stake, they are highly incentivized to show up, to work hard, to support one another. Because when they do well, the business does well. And when the business does well, they do well. Now, Oaks Church is far from a business. But I give that illustration because we, sorry, I'm messing with my mic here just a little bit. We do embrace here at Oaks a sort of owner-operated governing structure known as congregationalism. If any of those words or all of those words sound like a foreign language, that's okay. Let me explain it this way. All right, follow me on this, okay? Every local church has to make important decisions about doctrine, about leadership, about who to partner with for mission and, and finances, decisions to be made about finances. But the question, so every local church has to make those decisions, but the question is, who has the authority to make those decisions? This is where the church's governing structure comes into play. When it comes to church governance, there are four basic structures. And all of these structures acknowledge Jesus as the supreme authority. There's the Episcopalian structure, the Presbyterian structure, the elder-ruled structure, and the elder-led congregational structure. It's going to be a little teachy this morning, but it's important, and hopefully it'll get a little preachy at times. The Episcopalian structure that is embraced by Anglican and Methodist churches insists that the final decision-making authority underneath the authority of Christ belongs to one single bishop who oversees several churches by himself. The Presbyterian structure that is embraced by Presbyterians and many multi-site churches insists that the final decision-making authority, again, underneath the authority of Christ, final decision-making authority belongs to a central group of elders who oversee several churches. The elder-ruled structure that is embraced by many independent and non-denominational churches insists that final decision-making authority belongs to exclusively the elder pastors of that local church. And the elder-led congregational structure that is also embraced by many independent and non-denominational churches insists that biblically qualified elder pastors must properly lead and equip and teach the members of the church 
But the final decision-making authority on major decisions rests on the whole church collectively. So these are the four basic structures when it comes to church governance. And every church in America, every church in the world embraces one or, or one of these four. And while all four of these structures claim to be based on scripture, we at Oaks believe that the elder-led congregational structure is the truest to God's word. So if you haven't already You've probably already begun to feel out this is going to be a little teachy today. I apologize for that, but it is necessary. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Now, in this passage, Jesus teaches his disciples and us the appropriate process for confronting a professing Christian who is living in blatant sin. And so we will consider this important process. It's very important. But we'll also consider the congregational structure that emerges from what Jesus has to say. And I would now invite you to follow along as I read. These are Jesus' words to his disciples. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if Two of you agree on earth about anything they ask. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we truly believe this is your word. And we believe that we have been given the gift of your Holy Spirit to help us understand it. To help us apply it to help us walk according to it for your glory and our joy we pray that you would do this among us today in Jesus name amen amen so before we jump into our consideration of congregationalism let's consider what's right in front of us in verses 15 16 and 17 okay so Jesus presents a hypothetical situation where one professing Christian sins against another. Well, that never happens, does it? <laughs> no, this is very useful for us to, to, to review here. So one professing Christian sins against another. This is Jesus' situation he's presenting. And then Jesus spells out a four-step process for addressing the issue. And the goal of this process, will you please hear me? The goal of this process is to bring about repentance 
and restoration and peace and unity. Step one in the process is the step that many of us are tempted to skip over because we don't like confrontation. <laughs> right? I'm with you. Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother or sister in Christ sins against you, or as some manuscripts put this, if your brother or sister in Christ is simply walking in unrepentant sin, so whether against you or just belligerently unrepentant sin that they're walking in, in, in patterns of arrogance, patterns of sexual immorality, greed, gossip, drunkenness, you name it, if a brother or sister in Christ is walking in patterns of that, Step number one, go to them. Go to them by yourself and tell them. Go to them prayerfully and humbly and lovingly by yourself and tell them that their pattern of behavior is out of sync with their profession. Their pattern of behavior is in fact diminishing the joys of the good godly life that are availed to them. Now, you mustn't and I mustn't call a meeting to confront every minor flaw in everyone, right? But when a, pre when a professing Christian exhibits a pattern of behavior that does not agree with their profession of faith, they must be lovingly told. I mean, maybe they don't see it. We all have blind spots. Maybe they need your prayer and your encouragement, your help. Or maybe if this individual has sinned against you, maybe you're carrying around a bitterness toward them that would be alleviated if you simply brought that past hurt to their attention. So much of church life feels burdensome because I think we're all carrying around bitternesses. But if we did what Jesus is prescribing in Matthew 18, 15, I think that peace would overwhelm the bitterness in the church. If you do this, Jesus says, if you do this in the second half of verse 15, if you go to your brother or sister in Christ and you tell them that their pattern of behavior doesn't agree with their profession of faith, and if they listen, if they listen and acknowledge and repent, hallelujah, You've gained your brother or sister. And undoubtedly, your relationship with them will be strengthened. There is a tremendous unifying work that takes place when we sit down with a brother or sister and we just get honest for a minute. However, verse uh, 16, Jesus adds, if your brother or sister disregards you, right? If they really are walking in a pattern of sinful behavior and they disregard you, they brush you off, they deny that there is any issue, then step number two, take one or two other believers, one or two other believers who know that individual well enough to verify the pattern of sinful behavior. And with those one or two other believers, which may include one or two elder pastors, with that small group of people, go to the individual, the sinning, professing Christian, and tell them that their, their pattern of behavior does not agree with their profession. Now look, it's not okay that we jump over step one and go right to step two. 
because, as David Platt rightly comments here, the goal is to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. If the sinning Christian listens to a group of us trying to tell him or her about a pattern of behavior that's out of sync with their profession, if they listen, if they repent, hallelujah, once again, we've gained a brother or sister and that relationship will no doubt be strengthened. Oh, that we would see that. But, but, Jesus continues, if they refuse to listen to the group of you, step three, verse 17, tell it, to the church. Tell it to the assembly, the called ones, to the congregation. We'll talk more about congregationalism here soon, but right here, let's understand something together. Step number three, go to the church and, and tell this, this brother is in a pattern of sinful behavior and he is not acknowledging it. He's not repenting. And we're gonna, we're gonna tell the church now. This step is intense, yes. But it isn't intended to send sinners into shameful hiding. It's actually, it, the intention is the opposite. See, God loves his people so much that when we are caught in patterns of behavior that contradict our profession of faith, he sends an army of believers to lovingly urge us to repent and be restored. So finally, step four, second half of verse seven, if the professing Christian who's walking in a pattern of sin, refuses to listen even to the church, then the church members collectively must no longer regard that person as a Christian, but as a Gentile and a tax collector, that is, as a pagan and a con artist. Now, with caution... With caution, that person should be welcomed and encouraged to sit in a service so that they can hear the word of God and the gospel preached and believe it. But they should be removed from church membership if they are a member. And they should be kept from partaking the Lord's Supper because their behavior, as far as can be discerned, is the behavior of an unbeliever. This four-step process is not fun to preach about. It's necessary, and it's a tool of mercy. It is good, and we desire to embrace this four-step process that is often called church discipline. The goal of church discipline in all four steps, hear this, the goal is to lovingly warn a professing Christian when they are playing with fire and to urge them toward repentance and restoration and peace and unity, to urge them into greater depths of the good godly life we all have been afforded by Christ. If you are a member of Oaks Church, you have agreed to participate 
in church discipline. When you see a concerning behavior, a pattern of behavior in me, hear this. When you see in me a pattern of behavior that contradicts the faith faith I profess, would you please be kind enough to come to me and tell me? And if I see a pattern of behavior in you that contradicts the faith that you profess, I want to be kind to you and bring that to your attention prayerfully, with humility, with honesty, with the desire for restoration. I want to be a part of a church that does that. In fact, I would make the argument that all true local churches of Christ do that to and with one another. They embrace, they practice church discipline. And church discipline, look, that's an intense sounding term. But it begins the moment that you come to me and say, brother, I love you. I'm just seeing that some of your patterns, some of the way that you, you know, the way that you speak to your wife or the absolute impatience that you have toward your kids during community group, we see that. It's not that doesn't accord with what you claim to believe. Church discipline starts in that very moment and by God's grace in that moment when you approach me and I approach you, we will will acknowledge one another and repent before the Lord. And in so doing, we will be sanctified and made holy and we will walk in greater swaths of righteousness, again, that have been availed to us by Christ. Look, God loves you and I so much that when we are caught in patterns of behavior that are sinful, patterns that discredit our profession of faith, God loves us enough to send an army of believers to lovingly urge us toward repentance and restoration. And more often than not, more often than not, genuine believers respond to step number one and maybe step number two it very rarely needs to go to step three and four. Let's be encouraged by that. And let's be conformed to obedience to God's word. Let us run the race together and gently, lovingly, humbly alert one another when there are are things in our lives that are looking really worldly. And let's help one another to run the race. Let's do that here. So in this passage, Jesus not only teaches us the church discipline process that we've just gone over he not only urges us to practice it but in this passage we're also given very good reason to embrace a congregational church structure and that's what we'll talk about for the remainder of our time so for the remainder of our time few moments that we have with our eyes on this passage let's consider this number one what congregationalism is number two what congregationalism requires and number three what congregationalism gains because it gains for us so point number one what congregationalism is in short congregationalism is the conviction that under Christ with the biblical guidance of qualified elder pastors 
the whole church is responsible for the whole church. And the whole church has the necessary authority to carry out their responsibility. Look again at verse 17. Jesus says, if that sinning Christian in this hypothetical scenario, if that sinning Christian refuses to listen to the smaller group of Christians who are together trying to show him his sin, if he refuses to listen, look what Jesus says to do. Tell it to the church. Not a bishop. Not a few elder pastors behind closed doors. Tell it to the assembled church. The assembled church, the congregation, is the final authority on this matter. In the middle of verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, do you hear, do you hear with me the weight that Jesus puts on that? If he refuses to listen even to the church, like, that's the last step. If he doesn't listen to the church, then the men and women who comprise that church have the collective authority to regard that person as a non-Christian. Verse 18, truly I say to you, dear church, whatever you bind on or loose on earth shall be bound or loosed in heaven. That's a kind of a paraphrase, a conjunction of that verse. Now look with me really quickly, just a brief commercial because a lot of churches in America led by, well, I'll just call them false preachers, twist that. Jesus gives, isn't giving us authority to bind up sickness and to loose health, wealth, and prosperity. That is nowhere in the context here. Look at the verses preceding it. Look at what Jesus says. He's giving us the collective authority to maintain the integrity and the safekeeping of the church. That's what we have authority to do. And when we wield this authority reverently, look at what he tells us in verses 19 and 20. We have his seal of approval when we do this rightly. Together, we are his body. Together, we are his representatives. And as such, together, we possess Jesus' power of attorney. This is a sobering privilege. It is. And it begs the question, what does congregationalism require? Point number two. And this is where church membership comes into view. This is where we're going to talk about that. Because Jesus has given the men and women of Oaks Church the collective authority to uphold this responsibility. Because of that, it is really important. It's, this is critical. That the men and women who are counted among us, it's critical that they actually be believers who believe God's gospel, who trust God's word, and who have been filled with God's spirit. There needs to be a process for figuring out who among us does these things. And so, three times a year, the elder pastors at Oaks 
host a membership class. You heard about it in the announcements this morning. And by the way, this is a very accidental timing. This was all the Lord's providence that tonight we have a membership class. But three times a year we have this class and we lay out the biblically founded passions, priorities, and particulars that give shape to Oaks Church. And then following our membership class, the elder pastors sit down with every man and or woman who desires to become a member, and we ask them to articulate their profession of faith. We ask them, what is the gospel that you claim to believe? And What is the evidence in your life that the Spirit is at work in you? What did you look like before God opened your heart? And what are you looking like and growing into after? We ask these questions and then we emphasize to them how important it is that they be prayerfully, consistently, intentionally among us. Because... If the Lord wills to add new members to this church by the approval of the current members, then those new members coming on board, they too will have a voting say when it comes to the big picture direction and integrity of the church. Do, we, do you see with me how healthy congregationalism requires a sort of membership process? We've got to know who among us really, really follows after Christ. And only that person and those people will be given the ability to say with a vote, yep, let's go in this direction. Nope, let's not go in that direction. Another thing or a couple other things that congregationalism requires, in addition to church membership, requires time and patience and good communication And those things are often regarded as inconvenient obstacles, right? So years ago, let me tell you a story. Years ago, I was pastorally assessed by the regional director of a particular denomination. And during my assessment, the director told me that I needed to be the sole elder in whatever church I would lead. One elder. You need to do that because it minimizes disagreements. He also told me that I needed to make all the big decisions by myself because if I didn't, decisions would take a long time. Maybe businesses run like that. Uh, But Oaks Church isn't a business. And as we've seen, Jesus gives authoritative responsibility to the collective members of the church. He doesn't give that authoritative responsibility just to a single pastor. So, yeah, big decisions are almost always going to be made made slowly here. And that will require patience. But the last time I checked, time and patience are actually more of a virtue than an obstacle. Congregationalism also requires good communication. I'm not great at that. I'm trying to be. The elder pastors of the church, we do have an authority to teach and to train and to equip and to lead the church members in a biblical direction. And as long as that direction is biblical, the members do ordinarily have an obligation to follow. 
But congregationalism requires, look, if you're a member, it requires a very keen ear while I'm up here talking. Because the moment that I start saying, you know what, here at Oaks, guess what? We don't really follow a triune God. It's, 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 it's one God and he just puts on different hats. He puts on the Jesus hat when he wants to. You, you, you need to call the bluff on that. You need to shut that down. Congregationalism requires your active, engaged listening and a responsibility for you to and with one another to hold me and the other elder pastors accountable. I actually really appreciate, there's a pastor theologian named Jonathan Lehman. You'll probably see his name on a couple of our books in the, in the cafe. He says this when a new member is coming into his congregation. He says this, friend, by joining this church, you are becoming jointly responsible for whether or not this congregation continues to faithfully proclaim God's word and whether or not the members of this congregation remain faithful to live in it. One day, dear friend, you're coming into membership here. One day you will stand before God and give an account for what you did with this role, this responsibility. So right now, friend, will you sit back? Will you stay anonymous? Will you be passive for the hour, hour and 15 minutes that we gather on Sundays and during the week and on Wednesdays? Or will you jump into the hard and rewarding work of studying the gospel and God's word and building relationships and listening attentively and making disciples of those among you? Friend, we need, as you are coming into membership in this church, we need your hands for the harvest and we implore you to work with us to be our partner. I think I'm going to start reading that to everyone. I have a membership sit down with because that is what we desire as a congregational, as an elderly-led congregational church, elder-led congregational church, we desire that right there. And lastly, and quickly, what this gains, what congregationalism gains. Real and rewarding belonging. Real and rewarding accountability. Real and rewarding responsibility. Real and rewarding authority. Real and rewarding ability to contribute to the integrity and safekeeping of what will, Lord willing, be a lasting local church called Oaks that our children will inherit. This isn't just for us right now. For however long, until Jesus returns, it is our hope and prayer that what we build here is biblical, it's God-fearing, it's Christ-honoring, it's standard, it's Standing, foundationed on the word, existing by the power of the Holy Spirit with joyful fellowship between saints and members who are urging one another and stirring one another up to love and to good works and all the more as the day draws near. And so... All the way back to my really cheesy uh, illustration at the beginning. Um, let's all be dart truck drivers uh, together. 
because ours is a sort of owner-operated entity. Like the Dart Transit truck drivers, you and I have an actual stake here. And I'm, speci I'm specifically talking to the members right now. I'm not trying to be exclusive, but I need to be in, in a certain way. Members, please be highly incentivized to show up on Sundays and Wednesdays and every day in between with me. Roll up our sleeves. Let's work hard. Let's watch one another. Let's speak the truth in love to one another. Let's encourage and support one another. And so there, build by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit a very strong and healthy church that our children will inherit. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who rose to life over the death of your sin, I would invite you, whether here or another God-fearing, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, join us. Become a member if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who rose to life over the death of your sin, join us. Let's be consistent. Let's be immersed, attentive, watchful, prayerful, courageous, supportive. And let us do all of that for God's glory, for yours and mine and our health, and for this lasting local work that's called Oaks Church. We participate. Congregationalism. Let's pray and we will sing a little bit. Oh, Father, I thank you for your word in Matthew 18. I pray that today wasn't all and only information and instruction, but Lord, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that every heart here is stirred to lean into the local church and maybe for, for, for many here that place is oaks, but the Lord, you would give us an urgency, a passion, a fervor, a desire to lean in and by the spirit that you have given to us, that we would build with Christ and in his name, build this church. May your will be done here in Worcester as it is in heaven, as we're about to sing together for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.